The following message is from the 2017 IBCD Institute, Addictions, Grace for the Journey. Well, good afternoon. Are your brains full yet? We got one more, we got one more day, so um, anyway, uh, I hope that with the notes and all that, that will help you to take it home, digest when when uh, we're not as weary, uh, but uh, anyway. Well, my name is uh, Keith Palmer, and I have the privilege of being your workshop uh, leader this afternoon. Uh, I am a pastor in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and I also uh, have the privilege of working with ACBC uh, in a number of different ways. And uh, so it's a real joy for me to be with you and uh, to talk about uh, how do we help those that are struggling with addictions. And uh, particularly in this talk, uh, I want to speak with you about the topic of crafting temptation and repentance plans to help addicts. Okay, so that's, uh, that's the seminar. So if that's where you want to be, great. If not, I'm going to pray in a minute, and that's a great time to slip out <laughs> to the workshop that uh, you intended to go to. So... I also should say uh, a lot of familiar faces, some of you that have been in my workshops before, but uh, it's a real thrill. I have my 14-year-old son, Alan, with me, traveling with me. Uh, This is our first uh, out-of-state conference to do together, so uh, it's been a real joy to have uh, him with us, uh, with me on this trip. So anyway, let me pray, and then uh, we'll look to God's Word as we come to our study. Uh, Father, we we need your grace. Um, We need to see people the way you do. We need to understand problems and particularly our subject of addictions. We need to understand those problems from a biblical point of view. And and we need to think about the change process. How do we actually help people to grow and change out of those situations? And uh, so, Father, uh, I think that these two topics we have in this talk are two of the most important uh, to address. So will you give us grace as we open your word? Help us to see how the principles of your word that we're going to see get crafted into ministry to hurting people with real struggles and uh, in hope that they will grow and change as they come to tap into the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So give uh, give us your assistance now as we open your word and as we think about helping people in issues of temptation and repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. So, question number one. Why plan for temptation and repentance? You're at a biblical counseling conference. We're talking about helping people struggling with addictions. This whole talk now is about temptation and repentance. So, so talk to me. Why might we want to talk about temptation and repentance when we're trying to minister to those struggling with addictions? We'll have temptation. Because they're going to have temptation. And yes? Temptation's going to happen. What's that? I was going to say temptation's going to happen. Yeah, it's going to happen. I mean, I, you know, whether you struggle with addiction or not, temptation is something that you will face until the day we see our Lord Jesus. And the Bible doesn't just say, well, I hope it goes okay. I hope it goes well. The Bible says, hey, let me explain to you how temptation works. Let me explain why you fall into it. Let me explain what you can do about it. And and one of the most frustrating things, I think just in counseling in general, but particularly those struggling with addictions, is I wish that I could tell them that that when they turn to Christ in repentance and faith for salvation, and then uh, they, uh, at that point, they come to Christ, union with Christ, forgiveness of sin, I wish I could tell them at that point, you will never be tempted with this addiction again. But, but that is not how God has chosen to work in, in this side of our salvation. And, and I, you know, I think part of God's design in that is to keep us utterly and completely dependent on Him as He fits us for heaven. And so temptation is going to happen. And uh, so what we want to do is understand it. And and what I want to do in this hour is help you. How can you help people struggling with addictions to deal with temptation? How do you prepare them to fight temptations? That's what we're going to do the first part. The second part, we're talking about repentance. Why do we need to talk about repentance? Because they're going to fail. Okay, they're going to fail. Okay, that that, that can be true. Yes? It's an appropriate healthy response to the temptation. 
It is important to know how they respond to the how they respond to the temptation. That's correct. Yes. So they don't get lost in shame. Don't get lost in shame, right? We just heard a great talk on that. Because repentance is the very foundation of life in Christianity. There you go. There you go. Yeah, I think of it like this: repentance is the engine for biblical change. And I agree with the gentleman here who said it's it's really the foundation. It really is. You don't come to Jesus in conversion without repentance. Right? And you don't grow in Christ as a Christian without repentance. So, so if you're going to be a biblical counselor, you need to be able to fall out of bed in the morning and talk about repentance. I mean, you need to be like, like I'm, if I called on you right now and said, come to the whiteboard, take the pen, outline for me biblical repentance. Could you do it? Some of you are starting to sweat right now. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, it's that important. It really is that essential to what we're trying to do. So we're going to talk about repentance, and not just repentance in general, but repentance uh, particularly applied to how we help those struggling with addiction. So um, there are three aspects. We might think of it like this. Three aspects to uh, addiction counseling. And um, I'm a guy... And so that means I get to pick the metaphor that I'm going to use for the outline. So, so here's the three aspects of addiction counseling. Ready? There's an offense, there's a defense, and there is, you guessed it, special teams. Now that's funny because in our family, my wife is the one saying, the game's on, let's go sit down. You know, I, I kind of married into that. I watch football because she likes it, so it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, all my friends are envious of her. Uh, in that way. So anyway, um, so offense, defense, special teams. What do I mean by that? Uh, Offense. Psalm 119 verse 9 starts like this. How can a young man keep his way pure? Answer, by keeping it according to your word. And then for some crazy reason, we skip the next verse and we go to the one after that. My word I have hidden in your heart, in my heart, that I might not sin against you. And well, that's that's a good that's a good Awana verse, right? That's a great verse to know. But that middle verse: How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word? Next verse: With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. So what, what is the psalmist saying? If you want to pursue a life of purity, if you want to pursue a life of holiness, if you're trying to come out of an addiction and, and your commitment is to, to grow and change with the Lord Jesus Christ and, and His grace and His help, the best defense is a good offense. That's what the psalmist is saying. It's with all my heart I have sought you. I, I think of it like this. Um, in, our, in our little town, there is a... Um, uh, there's a steakhouse and there's McDonald's. And, and right across, I live on a lake, we live on a lake, Lake Town. So there's a little section of lake and, and there's McDonald's. So, so let's say that, um, that I take you, you, you come to Granbury, come to Granbury, and, uh, and we go out for a wonderful steak dinner at the Hofbrau Steakhouse right there. And, and you just lay down the, the, the ribeye or the porterhouse or whatever you like. And, if you're a vegetarian, we'll have to work something else out. But anyway, but if you like beef, I mean, this is the place to go in Granbury, Texas. And so you come out, they slap this thing down, good old Texas, you know, corn-fed beef there. Everything is great. And they bring the sides, the potatoes, the bread. And then they bring the dessert tray. And, and, and we just have the most awesome time of food and fellowship, right? And we walk out and, uh, and we look across the uh, lake there and we see the golden arches. And at the moment that we are reveling in the joy of this wonderful steak meal, and we are full, we are satisfied. You know, the golden arches just doesn't look so attractive. I mean, a a, a reheated cheeseburger just is not going to be compelling to you at that point. And that's what the psalmist is saying. When you have sought God with all your heart and you are satisfied in Him, that is the best defense to all these other false idols, false gods, temptations and sins around you. That's the point, okay? Now, we're not going to talk about offense in this uh, talk. In fact, I, actually, I gave you the offensive part of the plan in an appendix there, so you have that to look up later on. What we're going to talk about is these other two things, defense and special teams. Uh, defense, you get that. 
Uh, defense is what I think of as resisting temptation. How do we deal with temptation? And then special teams. When does the special team unit come out in a football game? When it's fourth and really long, right? When you're in trouble, when, when, when something bad has happened and you got to get out of the situation. So I think of that as the repentance part of it. Uh, offense is what you do to stay healthy before God. Defense is what you do to resist temptation. Special teams or repentance is what you do when you fall into sin. But you want to handle that sin biblically. And one of the things I've seen that is, this is a key to helping people struggling with addictions. Um, what do they do when they fail? For example, um, if I were to ask the dozens of men that I've helped uh, in counseling pornography issues in those early sessions, I always ask them, um, so when you fall into sin and you look at pornography, what do you do? What do you think the number one answer is? This is the part where you talk. What, what do you think the number one answer is? At least in my experience, it's not statistically significant. But Okay, we'll try that. The number one thing is, um, I pray. Well, that's good. You need to pray. That's where it starts. What else do you do? Feel bad? Try not to do it again? So, so here's biblical repentance. And they're doing like, you know, 1%. And they wonder why they're still struggling. They wonder why they're not changing. So coming back to the gentleman's comment here, repentance is, is that robust engine of biblical change. So we've got to understand all three of these things. So first, let's talk about defense, okay? And uh, that, that's my segue to talk about temptation. And, and here, here's the plan. We're going to look at several texts that talk about temptation. And we're going to pull some principles out of those texts that help us to think intelligibly and helpfully about dealing with temptation. And then we're going to put those together in a plan that you can use in your counseling ministry to help those uh, to resist temptation. Okay, make sense? Okay, so here we go. Turn your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. And let's look at the first uh, principle in dealing with temptation. This comes in the very first book of the Bible. And as you're turning to Genesis 39, of course, you know uh, the, the last several uh, chapters of the book of Genesis are the uh, historic narrative of a man named Joseph. And uh, you'll remember the situation with his brothers. You remember the situation with the favoritism going on with his father. And his brothers hated him for that. They sold him into slavery. You, you remember all that. Well, in God's kind providence, uh, the Lord works in Joseph's life to put him in an amazingly significant position in all of Egypt. In, in fact, the text indicates that he is basically the, the vice president. I mean, he, he's the second in charge next only to uh, a man named um, Potiphar, right? Or, excuse me, um, to the Pharaoh, and Potiphar was kind of his boss, right? So, so you're thinking about um, the, the, the significance of this position. And um, so we're going to parachute into to Genesis 39 here. And you remember that this is a godly man. Joseph had grown uh, in maturity and godliness. And Potiphar, uh, this, this Egyptian officer, um, had a wife who was sexually interested in Joseph. And uh, he made a number of attempts, a number of, we might say, passes at him. And uh, Joseph is impeccable in his integrity. Um, uh, the, the language here, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? He says to her on one occasion in verse 9. And, uh, but the text says that she was relentless. She would come day after day seeking to commit adultery with Joseph. And one day, verse 12, it says, she caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. And so he did what? He left his garment in her hand and he fled. So this is going to feel like spiritual kindergarten. But sometimes we need to go back to kindergarten. The, the very first principle with temptation is to flee. And we see this in the New Testament. Flee youthful lusts. Right? Um, it's so simple, but we forget that part of the reason we end up 
in a situation where temptation is overwhelming is we have not followed the very first principle of temptation. And that is, get out of there. Uh, Solomon, in talking to his uh, children in Proverbs chapter 5 and Proverbs chapter 7, one of the things he says to his son is he says, Sons, you see that corner over there? You know what that corner is? That's where the prostitutes hang out. And he explains what that means. And, And he says this, Do not go near the door of her house. What's he saying? He's saying flee temptation. Don't go anywhere near it. Um, do not go near the things that cause you to be tempted. And, and um, you know, we, we think about that. Um, uh, we tell our, our, um, our students in our church, our college students, um, if you are in a romantic relationship and your desire is to honor the Lord in that by being pure, here's a great way to do that. Don't ever put yourself in a situation where you could compromise your purity. It's spiritual kindergarten, right? You flee temptation. You don't put yourself in a situation where you could be tempted. Or in the case where the temptation comes to you, like in the case of Joseph and Potiphar, you get out of there. You run. And and we'll talk about how this, this plays out practically. But I want you to see, and you have all those verses there in your notes, over and over and over again, the Bible says, look guys, this is not that hard. Get out of the situation. Remove yourself from the situation where you could fall into the temptation by committing sin. Okay, so that's the first thing we're going to learn. Genesis chapter 39 and these other texts here to flee temptation. Now, what are we going to do? We're going to look at some texts. We're going to pull some principles. And then I'm going to help you to craft those into a plan that you can use in your counseling ministry to help people to resist temptation. Let's look at the second principle that we find in Romans chapter 13. If you want to turn in your Bible over there with me, we're going to look at a whole bunch of texts. So uh, one of my strategies for keeping you awake today is to keep you moving around in your Bible. So if I see you nodding off, I will see that uh, my strategy is utterly failing. So um, I had a I had a teacher in high school, biology teacher, and he kept a uh, you remember the old water bottles that had the hose on them? And he would keep a water bottle, and, and he, you know, he was like, you know, quick draw. He would pull that thing up, and, you know, and he would he would shoot water at the student who was, you know, falling asleep in his class. And uh, so it's like, well, that's pretty cool. And you know, needless to say, you didn't fall asleep in his class, or you got a shower. Well, it got worse during his biology teacher. It got worse in the frog dissection lab. And this guy had a a legacy in the school that you did not want to be the guy nodding off during the frog lab because he would throw a frog at you. And you would smell like formaldehyde for the rest of the day. And, and you know, heaven forbid, you were the lab partner sitting next to him. You get the spray, you know, coming off of the... So anyway, I will not do that, but um, hopefully we'll keep you awake. Or we can just keep doing mic drops. That'll keep you awake, too. All right, here we go. Um, let's do this. So Romans chapter 13, verse 14. And, and this, this comes with all the momentum of Romans. So it, it, it's, we're not doing it justice because we've talked about the gospel. We've talked about justification by faith. We've talked about union with Christ. We've talked about faith in the life of Abraham. We've talked about um, uh, putting off and putting on and, and walking in your position, Romans chapter 6. We've talked about the battle of sin, uh, Romans chapter 8. You're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We, we talk about all that, okay? So with all that in mind, Romans 12, 1, right? Present yourselves a living and sacrifice, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. So it, it's in that realm now that we read this verse, Romans chapter 13, verse 14. Um, so let's, let's back up and, and talk about 13. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So the principle here, according to Romans 13, 14, is to make no provision. To make no provision. Now, we need to talk about that word because the English kind of makes it a bit ambiguous as to what uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about here. That little word provision means this. It's a plan 
to indulge in the temptation. That word provision means making a plan. So, so how does that work? Um, I was talking to a young man years ago about his struggle with pornography. And um, a college student went back to his dorm room, looked at something he shouldn't have, and fell into sin. I asked him this question. I said, um, when do you think the temptation to do that started? And he wasn't sure, so we kind of walked through and got some data and all that. And it turns out that in the, his first class, I think at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock in the morning that day, something happened, and he thought about looking at pornography. And the reason that at 8 or 9 in the morning, he ended up falling into that temptation at like 3 or 4 or 5 in the afternoon is because he didn't obey this verse. Instead of putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and not making a plan, killing the temptation at the first moment, he spent the rest of the day going, well, what if I did this? What if I did that? He, he planned out the day. And this is not unique to sexual temptation. This is, this is true with any temptation. What, what Paul is saying is, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, his provision, his, his strength, his grace. Uh, we talked about that back in Romans chapter 6. But then he says this, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Stop making a plan. You have to kill the temptation the moment it arises and not feed it by creating you know, how it's going to go. So that's another tidbit we learn uh, about uh, temptation there. And we cross-reference Proverbs chapter 7 where Solomon tells his son the same thing. Don't make any provision for that. Let's look at another text. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. This is a, a wonderful text. Uh, if you have um, uh, familiarity with Jay Adams and his writing, you know um, uh, he has a whole booklet on uh, an explanation of this verse. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And like Romans, there, there's a whole theological momentum that's coming into Romans 10. But let's just look at this little verse here in verse 13 as Paul writes to the Corinthian Christians. He says uh, this, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Now, you guys understand that the theology of the passage is always the main point, right? You get that? When we are reading our Bibles, you're reading your Bible reading plan, you're listening to your pastor preach, you know, whatever you're doing, the theology of the text is always the main point. And what we see here in terms of the theology of the text in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, what is the theology of this text? And by theology, I'm not using it in the broadest sense, uh, what does this teach us about God? Well, he does provide a way of escape. Okay, even before that, what does it teach us about God? He's faithful. He's faithful. Okay, he's faithful to do what? He's faithful to do a number of things. But let's just stop right there. Um, how do you deal with temptation? You start with remembering your God is trustworthy. He's faithful. He is a God, when He says something, you can bank on the truthfulness of what He says. Because if you don't believe that, everything else the Bible says is not going to help you. We have a God who we can trust. We have a God who we can rely on. So that's the theology of the, of the text. God is faithful. Now notice, let's just kind of break it down here. There's no temptation that's overtaken you, uh, but such as is common to man. Uh, and, and that's just saying that, uh, it's not saying everybody has the same experiences. What, what the Apostle Paul is writing here and intending, I think, is that he's saying, you know, the struggles that we face are common to humanity. You know, the particular specifics may look different, but the garden variety struggles of humanity are pretty much the same. So, so I can't walk away saying, well, my situation is so different, there's just no, no hope for me. There's no way that, that this is going to be helped. 
But God is faithful. Now notice, what is he faithful to do? What, is, what specific areas can I trust God in the moment of temptation? Well, first of all, the text says he limits the severity of the temptation, doesn't he? He limits the severity of the temptation. Look back at the text. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And just a footnote on that. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able as you rely on him. He's not saying you don't need Jesus for temptation. He's saying as you, uh, like Hebrews 4, you're going to that throne of grace to provide mercy, to find mercy and grace to help in your time of need. As you are clinging to Christ and as you are relying on His grace, God says, I will limit the severity of the temptation so that it does not exceed your ability in Christ to resist. You can trust your God to do that. But there's another thing. Look at this. He also is faithful to provide a way of escape. In fact, that's that's a great question. And and we'll get to the practical stuff in a minute. But but when you're helping somebody and they've fallen into temptation, here's a great question to ask after the fact. Where was the way of escape that you missed? It was there. I I think of it as, you know, the, the, the road... The road from the beginning of temptation to sin, think of it like a highway. And along the way, as you're being tempted and you're heading toward actually committing the sin, God graciously provides these off ramps. And we got to open our eyes and say, Where are the off ramps? I, I can get off here, I can get off here. Now, no, God doesn't say He gives you 18 off ramps, He says, I will give you at least one. So He's faithful to provide a way of escape. And, and that's so helpful because. In the moment of temptation, talk to me here. In the moment of temptation, it feels, it feels like you can't help it. It feels too strong. And that's why we do not use our feelings and emotions to evaluate reality. In that moment, we use the theology that we know based on this text that our God is faithful and I will believe what He says here. I will trust that this is not too much. Without His help, He will provide me a way of escape. I will believe that and not my feelings. And if you reverse that... um, Sinning is going to happen when you listen to your feelings. Okay, so you see how that, that's so helpful. You see these principles, flee temptation, make no provision, God's faithful in those two ways. And, and by the way, before we leave 1 Corinthians 10, notice he says, um, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. A lot of Christians think the way God provides a way of escape is he removes the strength of the temptation. I just pray and he takes all those strong desires away. That's not what the text says. The text says, look look very closely, the way of escape is not taking the temptation away. It's giving you the grace to endure it. You see that? So the temptation, sometimes God does take the temptation away. Sometimes he does reduce the strength. But what he does say here is that he will promise an ability to endure so that you don't fall into it. And there's a lot of frustrated Christians because they think the way of escape means God takes the temptation away. He takes the desire away. That's not how God often works. Okay, so let's move on. Uh, Look with me now at James chapter 1, uh, verses 13 to 16. Some of you that have uh, been in some of my earlier workshops, this will be a little bit of review. But let's look back at at James chapter 1 as we think about... um, Again, we're, we're, we're taking these texts that deal with temptation and we're pulling principles out and we're going to use those principles in a minute as we think about crafting a plan to help uh, people struggling with addiction. <coughs> James chapter 1, uh, this is a preeminent text on dealing with temptation. Uh, it starts uh, in James chapter 1, uh, verse 13, if you're there in your Bibles. Um, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Um, That's kind of clearing the theological error. God God is not a God who is setting Christians up for failure. Uh, In fact, not only does God not tempt Christians to sin, notice what it says there. He's incapable of being tempted. This is a God who isn't just holy. He's what? He's holy, holy, holy. He he, he is above 
any sort of temptation. There is no, as the scripture says, there's no darkness. There's no shifting shadow in him. He's not tempted by evil. He doesn't tempt anyone. So the next logical question is, okay, well, why am I tempted so much? Well, it says each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So we get two principles here. The first is that temptation comes through our sinful desire. Now, now think about this. We are prone to think that my biggest problem in temptation is something out there, something outside of myself. Um, alcohol or drugs or video games or gambling or pornography or you know, whatever it is. And it is true that those things contribute to the experience of temptation. But notice that Mr. James here does not say each one is tempted and carried away when he is enticed by all the bad things out in the world. The reason, the, the, the reason those sinful things out there are a threat to us is because the sinful things out there resonate with something inside of us. This, this indwelling sin, this, this uh, remaining flesh, as Scripture calls it. Um, and so it's those external things that resonate with that, that remaining sin in us, and that's the problem. And, and that's where James puts the crosshairs uh, of his, his message here. It's those desires inside of you that are the problem. And uh, we talked uh, a, a couple of sessions ago that that word desire means a governing desire or a ruling desire. I, I think of it as the, it's the hands on the steering wheel of your heart. And it steers your life the direction that you end up going. Now, now notice also that this little word, uh, he, is, he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So, so not only does temptation come through our sinful desires, but sinful desires have power because of deception. And this, this is so profound to think about this. Why? Just ask yourself this question. Why do I do bad things that I know are bad? Right? Why do I do things that I know are wrong, but I still want to do them sometimes? I mean, don't, don't you, do you, do you sit with an open Bible calling out, why do I keep doing this? The answer is, or at least part of the answer is, your sinful desires continue to have a powerful influence in your life and in my life because of the deception that they bring. If you deflate a sinful desire of its deception, you disarm it of its power. Do you see that? So when I see through the lies and deception of the desire, the sinful desire that I'm having, that, that, that it's like turning the volume down. It's turning the power down on the, the voice, the influence of that temptation. That little word enticed means to lure by deception. Uh, it, it's, like, um, it's like going fishing. And, you know, you throw your little lure into the lake, and your goal is to deceive and lie to those fish, right? You're, 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 you're a liar if you're a fisherman. You are. You may not want to admit it, but you're a liar. You're a deceiver because that's what you're trying to do. And actually, the better deceiver you are, the better fisherman you are. And so James borrows that metaphor and says, that's what it is with sin. When, when you see something that looks desire, it looks attractive, the fish sees it, and he thinks, man, this is food, this is lunch, this is great. But there's a hook inside of it that's going to kill him. That's how sin works. It's promising something desirable, but it's deceptive. It's lying to you, and in the end, it ends up killing you or hurting you. So we have to be able to see through that in the moment of temptation. Uh, one last text, and we're, we got to, this is it, it is, it is almost a crime to just blow through these wonderful verses this quickly. Um, just back up a few pages to Hebrews chapter 4, and let's look at one more that is so, so important. Hebrews chapter 4, talking about our great high priest, uh, the Lord Jesus. I, I love this. Um, we have... Chapter 4, verse 14, Hebrews. A great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Why is that? But we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now you might expect the writer to Hebrews at that point to say, Jesus, give me some tips on how you resisted temptation. Boom, 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 boom. That's not what he does. He says, 
You don't need the principles that Jesus followed so much. You need the person of Jesus in your moment of temptation. Okay, now, those are not mutually exclusive. I'm not downplaying the principles of the Bible. What I'm saying is you need to go to the sinless one. You need to go to that person that has been tempted just like you have. And yet he has resisted every single time. And as you draw near to him, what does it say? Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? So that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We need to draw near to Him. So, so again, thinking about some principles we can draw from this. Jesus has been tempted in all things like us, but He never sinned. Jesus sympathizes with us in our weakness. Isn't that amazing? This is the second person of the Trinity. This is God of very God. This is, according to Colossians 1, the one who spoke the universe into existence and continues to sustain it, Hebrews 1, by the word of His power. It's, it's this God. It's this all-powerful, amazing one. And yet, because He's not just 100% God, He's also 100% man at the same time, the same person. That's the incarnation. He knows exactly what you feel like. When you're struggling, when that counselee is struggling, I, this pull, this, 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 I know it's wrong, but pull into it. And Jesus says, yeah, I know what that's like. And you know how it is. When you're struggling with something, there is something very encouraging about meeting somebody else who struggles with the same thing you struggle with, but is at victory. Right? That's the Lord Jesus. He's never given in, even one time. And also, He provides grace and mercy to help when we come to Him. Okay, so He's been tempted in all things as we are, but never sinned. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. And He provides grace and mercy to help when we come to Him. Okay, so we could go on and on and on, but let's just stop right now and let's say, okay, let's take what we've learned and let's craft a defensive plan. Now, now what do I mean by defense? We are going to craft a plan to help people to resist temptation in light of what we've learned. Make sense? Okay, so what does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, it needs to be simple. You don't need a multi-volume solution when you are being tempted. You need something very simple and something uh, yet robust enough so it's simple enough to remember, but it's designed to break the building momentum of temptation. Do you know what I mean when I say the building momentum of temptation? Temptation is like the proverbial snowball that starts at the top of the hill and gains both momentum and mass as it rolls down the hill. Okay? And so the temptation plan is designed to stop that as soon as possible before the momentum and the mass are overwhelming. So, can I start with a real simple one? This is the one that we use with our kids. Okay? Um, I married a kindergarten teacher, and I have learned more about teaching the Bible, making things simple. Uh, you know, I would say if you can teach a kindergarten student, you can teach anybody. Adults are easy compared to five-year-olds. And... Um, so my wife is, is so helpful in these things. I wish she was here because you'd probably learn more from her. Um, but, but when we were thinking about these things with our kids, it's like, okay, how do we take what the Bible says and help our kids with temptation? So this is our plan with kids. Stop, get away, pray, obey. Okay, so here it is. Real simple. Um, now I want you to see how not all the principles we've covered are there, but there are enough to stop the momentum. Okay, so when you're, well, let's, say, let's say my kids are getting angry, uh, something that never happens, right? You know, anger between your brother and sister, right, okay. Hypothetically, we'll talk about hypothetically. Um, uh, what's the first thing you do? The first thing you do is you stop. You realize what you're doing. Then what do you do? You get away. You remove yourself from that situation. You don't keep arguing over the Lego. You remove yourself from that situation. Then you cry out to the Lord. Lord, I need you. I need your help. I'm getting angry with my brother. I'm, I'm getting angry over a Lego. Um, I need your grace. I need your help. Will you help me to think clearly? Will you help me to think about what I'm doing? Will you help me to, to identify what, are, what, are, what do I want? What do I want and I'm sinning because I'm not getting it? Okay? And then obey. 
what would God tell me to do at this point? Okay. Now, it's simple. See, it, it doesn't answer all the questions. There's so much more that can be said. But the point is, it's simple. It's easy to remember. It even sort of rhymes. Stop, get away, pray, obey. And how many times do we say that, Alan, in our house? We say that all the time, don't we? So, um, uh, you can ask my 14-year-old how that works if you want <laughs> parenting tips there. So, um, okay, so, so that, we'll start with a simple example. Let, let's, let's graduate now to what it might look like with an adult counselee. Okay, let's say we're talking about pornography, and you're trying to help somebody struggling with pornography. The first thing would be to flee to a safe place. Flee to a safe place. Uh, I mentioned in one of the earlier workshops um, years ago helping a, a college student and his struggle was he would go back to his dorm room where he had uh, internet access and when his roommates weren't there that's when he was tempted to look at pornography. So I said okay, um, until you get on top of this you don't need to be in your dorm room alone. Okay, that's pretty radical. Isn't that what, isn't that what we're reading? Run! Flee youthful lust. Well, and we didn't talk about Matthew 5, but Jesus said, you know, if there's something that causes you to sin, cut it off and put it far from you. And that may mean being in your dorm room alone with internet access. So, so there was a, there was, it's a college town, right? There's fast food everywhere and they're open 24 hours because college students do not exist, you know, during the first 12 hours of daylight most of the time. It's, it's in the evening. Um, so there's this Taco Bell across the street. And I said, when you're tempted... Why don't you go to Taco Bell and do your homework? Why don't you go to Taco Bell and you know, text your friends or whatever you're doing that afternoon? And, and th there's nothing in the Bible about going to Taco Bell. But the point was, it removed him from the situation. And, and it, it's, again, it's spiritual kindergarten, but follow me. If, you're, if you remove yourself from the place where you can commit sin, you're not going to commit sin. You're not going to sit there and Taco Bell, looking at pornography with all the other customers around. You're not going to do it. So that was his safe place, and that was instrumental. Uh, now, you understand, that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't change his heart, does it? And we would not say the problem is solved there. What that does is it gives him some breathing room, some spiritual breathing room, so that now he can address the heart. He's removed himself from the situation. The, the, the weight and momentum and mass of building temptation has subsided, and now he can think clearly. What do I need to do next? Uh, pray for help. We see that, right? That, that's Hebrews 4. You go to the Lord Jesus. You talk to Him. It, it always is. You go to the Lord Jesus. You talk to Him. You cry out to Him for help. Uh, the way we arranged it in this particular counseling situation, the third thing He was to do, He was to get to Taco Bell, pray, and then call His accountability partner. There, there was another older godly guy that was working with Him, holding Him accountable, and He was to call that person and say, I'm sitting at Taco Bell. I just got out of class. I was being tempted, so I came here. What do I do? And that accountability person would, would pray with Him. He might talk about, well, what happened during the day? What happened earlier? You know, uh, what are the contributing factors to temptation? Uh, and then finally, um, uh, we had a little, the things that we had talked about in counseling, that some biblical principles uh, for, for actually changing repentance and whatnot. Um, there was, there was some, uh, a summary of those things that I told him, just, just keep those in your car. And that way he'd go to Taco Bell, he'd have this in his car, so he calls the accountability person, and then he could sit there and review the biblical principles, the biblical passages that we went over, and renew his mind, and putting off and putting on, and, and the principle being, you, you, don't, you don't go back until your desires are fully changed. And uh, in this situation, my recommendation was that he just avoid being in his dorm room alone until he had grown enough spiritually to where that wasn't putting himself in a place of compromise. Okay, do you see how that works? So we're, we're just taking principles and we're putting into a simple plan that I, I taught him this. I had him write this down and memorize it. Okay, when you're tempted, you don't think, you flee. And then you work through all this. But you remove yourself from the situation first. That, that's true with alcohol. It's true with drugs. It's true with gambling. Uh, it, what, whatever sort of addiction you're dealing with, this is what you need to do. Now, uh, I've given you two sort of generic ways, but, but notice, you know, we're not going after generic. We want to fine-tune it for the specific counseling situation. So, for example, um, if, if you're having, uh, and I think, I think this was one of the guys um, where, you know, he's walking around campus, he sees something, he hears something, and the temptation arises. 
So part of, the, part of the temptation plan is Romans 13, 14. Make no provision. You, kill, you learn to kill that temptation. The moment it arises, you do not give it another thought. You don't think the next thought. You don't start thinking about a plan. You don't start, well, if I do this and do that, and if I go home, my roommate, none of that. You have to learn to kill the temptation the moment it comes. That's Romans 13, 14. And most of all, don't forget the first part, to put on the Lord Jesus. That's, again, turning to him for grace and help. What about this? Um, maybe you've got somebody who's not fleeing. So you address that. What if you have somebody who is believing the same lies? Um, uh, let's say it's an alcohol issue. And this guy, the, the guy that's struggling with alcohol is saying, I cannot relax without alcohol. I need alcohol to be at peace. So you're going to build that principle, that lie, that deceit, right? Remember, temptation gets its power from what? Deception. From deception, from the lies. So build that into the temptation plan. He flees, and now he's got a card, let's say, in front of him, and it says here, um, I'm not used to being tied down as a pastor. <laughs> Come here. All right. So, so maybe it's... Um, uh, maybe it... There's no way you guys are going to see this, and that's dead anyway. Okay, so forget that idea. Um, picture on this card two columns. And on one column, it's lies that I believe and tell myself. And on the other column, it is truths that God's Word tells me that counter the lies. So on this side, it might be, I need alcohol to be at peace tonight. That's in the lie column. The other column, it says, Jesus says, Matthew 11... Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you peace. That's where peace comes from, right? Or, or uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Peace is when we are casting all our anxiety on Him, when we're praying about those things. So, so you get the idea. So you want to tailor the plan uh, in order to help specific issues, specific, the specific needs of that situation. Sometimes people will say, I can't. The temptation is too strong. Make them memorize 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God says he's faithful. When I believe that the temptation is too strong, I am calling God a liar. I need to renew my mind with the truth of God. Or there's no way out. We talked about that. Okay. So do you see how those principles play into a temptation plan? So craft a simple yet robust temptation plan that as soon as that temptation arises, you have trained that person. You've given them, this is exactly what I want you to do to remove themselves from the situation and begin to address and dismantle the temptation. Okay. Now, with that, let's talk about that same principle now, but let's think about it in terms of repentance. Because not only do we have to have the defensive plan, when temptation arises, we're trying to stop that. What do you do when people actually fall into temptation? They've given into sin. Well, turn with me back to, uh, let's look at Psalm 51. I wish we could do both Psalms. We don't have time to do both, but you have references there for your own uh, study. Psalm 51, as you're turning back there, uh, as you know, this is one of uh, two Psalms that are directly related to David's repentance following his uh, sin of adultery with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah, and all the deception that went with that, uh, that situation. Now, first of all, let's talk about some key components of repentance, okay? And again, as biblical counselors, you need to be able to fall out of bed in the morning. You have not had your coffee yet, and you can, you can talk and lead somebody into repentance. That's how important it is. It's the engine of biblical change. Now, so what does that look like? Let's just hit the highlights of what we see from Psalm 51 regarding repentance. What is it? What does it look like? Uh, notice, first of all, that repentance involves an acknowledgement or a comprehension of the sin that's been committed. Notice with me Psalm 51, uh, verse 3. Wa uh, uh, For I know my transgressions, David writes, and my sin is ever before me. Uh, what he's saying is, I have come to the place where I see what I have done. I acknowledge what I've done. I, I get it. I understand it. And we know that from, because of how the text continues. But, but again, spiritual kindergarten, you can't repent if you don't know what you did wrong. And when you're dealing with someone with addiction, addiction can be such a complicated series of sinful practices, thoughts, beliefs, 
Um, you're, you're trying to help somebody to think about all these different pieces of what contributes to addiction and understand it and see, for example, you, you say to the lady, when, when you believe that lie about your well-being, that's sin. That's how your sin gets power, when you embrace lies, things that aren't true. So acknowledgement or comprehension is the first element of biblical repentance. Secondly, confession. Chapter 51, verse 4. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now, David is not here meaning that he only sinned against God and not against Uriah and Bathsheba and really the whole nation of Israel as, as the king of Israel. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, I recognize that my sin is primarily and preeminently against God first. So against you and you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Uh, I, I said confession. What, what's confession? It's on your notes there. To say the same thing. That's what confession means, to say the same thing, meaning I am agreeing with God about what I did, that it was wrong. I'm not making excuses. I'm not uh, trying to look for exceptions. I am agreeing with God in terms of my violation of his moral law. So repentance involves confession. Thirdly, repentance involves a godly remorse. Now, you may have seen there are some little cards that IBCD created um, that are floating around here. One of them is, is on true and false repentance. Have you seen those? I think they might be in your folder maybe. Um, that's a great little resource that is overlapping with some of the things we're talking about here uh, if you have that for reference. But listen to the godly remorse. He, he, he says it in the verse we just looked at. It's against you and you only that I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He, he's, he's not primarily thinking about the horizontal implications of his sin. He's thinking about the vertical implications of his sin. Again, not minimizing the hurt to people, but seeing that God is the party chiefly sinned against in all sin. And he recognizes that. You know, it contrasts that with people that you counsel and I counsel that make excuses for what they've done. They're sad that they got caught. They're sorry that their wife or husband don't trust them anymore. They're sad that they have lost some benefits related to the sin and the fallout from that. But market guys, when you have somebody who's really repentant, they are primarily sorrowful that they have sinned against their God and their Savior. And that's the difference. So godly sorrow. We also see a desire and an asking for forgiveness. Psalm 51.1 Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Now watch this. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. He says in three different ways, Lord, please forgive me, please forgive me, please forgive me. All three of those expressions are, are showing and demonstrating David's desire that God would forgive him. So again, uh, an asking for forgiveness. Repentance involves acknowledgement, confession, godly sorrow, godly remorse, and an asking for forgiveness. And then the last thing that repentance involves is a commitment. Um, you guys understand, repentance is a spiritual U-turn, Right? I'm going the wrong direction. I realize I'm going the wrong direction. I do a 180 degree turn and I begin to go in the right direction. That's why, that's why John the Baptist said as he began his ministry, therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance, right? If you're really repentant, you should be able to see the evidence of that in the beginning transformation of your life. So, so repentance is not just saying you're sorry. It's not just acknowledging your sin. It's not just asking for forgiveness. It is a commitment to change. And so we see that in chapter 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Uh, what's he saying there? He's saying, Lord, I don't want to stay the same. Change me. Work in me. Cleanse me. Make me a new person from the inside out. 
So, so much more could be said about repentance, but that gives you a little bit of an outline there. So, um, how do we take those principles of repentance, the engine of change, and how do we apply those now to a repentance plan? So, remember, uh, defense, the temptation plan, that's what you do when you're being tempted. You help the person with that. Now, let's talk about a repentance plan. What do you want that counselee to do if they were to fall into sin? And I, I have this all, when I do this in counseling, this is all written down. I hand it to them and I say, I want you to walk through each one of these steps to make sure that your repentance is comprehensive. So you'll, you'll recognize some of these along the way. So how do we do that? Number one, confess the sin to God and seek his forgiveness. You got to deal with the vertical relationship first. First John 1 John 1.9 says, uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Number two, confess the sin and seek forgiveness from those you sinned against. So now we look to the, to the horizontal relationship. So Luke 17, 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. So in addiction, we, we talked about this um, for those of you in the workshop I did last night. There is a, a wake. There is a wake of broken relationships, of people hurt behind every addict, isn't there? And a repentance plan means that, that that person struggling first confesses their sin to God and then they turn around and they look at the, the carnage and the damage of what they've done to all these other relationships and they go to each one of those parties and confess what they've done and seek forgiveness from those people. Okay, now, now there's, there's wise ways to do that. We'll talk about those another day, but that needs to happen. Third, confess the sin to another brother in Christ or sister in Christ, if, ladies, if you're working with another woman, uh, who can help you with accountability and can pray for you. This is where we need to be completely open and honest. James chapter 5 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So uh, open accountability going on here. Uh, this sort of transparency is necessary uh, for people to grow and change out of addiction. Uh, fourth, take steps of radical amputation to avoid temptation in the future. We, we did not look specifically at this passage. Uh, most of you are familiar with it, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, Cut it off. If your iPhone causes you to sin. Oh, that's harder, isn't it? If those friends contribute in an ungodly way, in a sinful way, to your sin and temptation, you may need to get some other friends. Okay, you see how this gets really personal and really practical? If going to that casino, even though the buffet is great and the rates are wonderful, causes you to sin, cut it off. Put it far from you. Okay? So, radical amputation. In fact, this, this is a great question to ask. When someone has fallen into sin, you ask yourself this question. Where was the opportunity... What, what, what was it that, that contributed to my sin that I need to radically amputate? And that's applying what Jesus says here in Matthew 5. You need to figure out what that is. And I've mentioned this before in other workshops. I find that people are, that are really, truly repentant are the people who are willing to be radical at this step in the counseling. And, and usually those are the people who succeed in counseling. Okay, number five. What actions of righteousness do you need to implement to replace the sin? Remember what, remember what David said? Lord, I need to change. Will you change me? I don't want to stay like this. And the Bible says, okay, there's some things you can do to change. How about this? What actions of righteousness do you need to implement to replace the sin? So, so here's some questions you can ask yourself, right? You've got, you've got these on your notes. In this specific instance of sin, what should I have been doing? What should you have been doing? Remember my friend, the college student? He should have been doing his homework. We have a missionary in our church who, who says this, It's not rocket surgery. <laughs> you shouldn't mix metaphors this late in the day, should you? Um, what should you have been doing? I should have been doing my homework. I should have been 
with my kids, helping my family. I should have been loving my wife. I should have been, I should have been working instead of looking on my computer. How about this? What are 10 specific ways I can show sacrificial love to my wife? This is like, as if it's a pornography case, he's turning away from pornography. He's learning to replace it with biblical love, which is about serving and sacrificing. How can I sacrificially love my wife and then go do those things? Well, write some ideas down. Write 10 things down and then go do them. What areas of responsibility have I been neglecting? Are there personal projects, ministries, household duties, other God-honoring activities that I need to start doing but I have been putting off. You see that? So this is about repentance. You're putting off and putting on. There's other things that God wants me to be doing that I'm not doing because I've been sinning with the addiction. Okay, so I'm putting off those things and I'm replacing them with these other things. Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. So ask God as part of repentance to examine your heart. Here's some great questions to ask yourself. What self-serving desires and motives do I see? Addictions always involve self-serving desires and motives. Ask God to help you identify those. Put those off. Letter B, when do you think this particular temptation began? We talked about that uh, early on. And, and often the temptation starts long before the fulfillment uh, of falling into the, to the sin. Uh, here's another thing. This is really specific to pornography, but it does, it does relate to every addiction. What's the main pleasure that is attractive? When you're doing addiction counseling, you need to figure out, as you help that person, what is it that's attractive about this particular addiction for this particular individual? Now, this is a chart that I found in Tim Chester's book, Closing the Window, which is a book about helping people with pornography. And you see it there. And his point is that there are different motives that lead to a man or a woman looking at pornography. And I love how he, he sets this out because he shows how faith in God and a particular gospel virtue counter the promise of the porn. If the pornography says, I, for example, I'm going to find refuge in this. I'm, 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 I just need some rest. I just, I just need to, to rest and, and, and be okay. Well, guess what? Call yourself to take refuge in the God who is your refuge. So there, there's that putting, I, there's a gospel virtue that allows me to address the sinful desire leading to the addiction. So I'll, I'll leave that chart with you to study, but there's some real helpful things there. Okay, how about this? In what other areas of your life do you see selfishness and living for self instead of for God and others? Sin is not compartmentalized. So if you're, if you're doing something selfish in an area of addiction, I guarantee you there are going to be other areas of that person's life where they're living for self. And helping them with the addiction doesn't just mean you help solve the problem with the addiction. It means you look at all these other ways that they're cultivating a life of living for self. And help them to learn to serve God and to serve their neighbor. Okay. Number seven. By God's grace, what commitments to action do you need to make? 1 Timothy 4.7 says this. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So in repentance, you look back at what happened and you say, Okay, I need to change this. I need to change this. I need to change this. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, a guy trying to get out of the drug scene has not changed his phone number. So all the dealers looking for business still got his number. Well, I don't need to do that. I can just... Well, then they call and guess what? The temptation on a bad day, he falls right back into it. So he said, I need to get a new, new, new phone number. I need to get rid of that, that opportunity. So what commitments to action? I, I, I think of it like this. Think of a dam holding back a huge body of water. There's a hole in the dam. There's water breaking through. So this, this principle is where is the hole in the dam? Now go patch it. Now go fix it. And then finally, and we have to land here, meditate on and rest in the benefits of being in Christ. Because even though in this repentance we're, we're confessing, we're analyzing, we're asking God to inspect and, and show us the wicked way in us, we want to land on our feet by saying, at the end of the day, I'm going to rest in and trust in my relationship with the Lord Jesus, who gives me 
no condemnation, who gives me his righteousness, who gives me all these resources to change, and I'm going to put my head on the pillow that night knowing that I am connected to him, I am in him, he is for me, he is helping me, and so I can have confidence in that Savior. Okay, there's an appendix in your notes that lists the offensive plan, just so you can see what I do in terms of the, the offensive part of it. And then some wonderful resources here. I hope that you are familiar with these, and if you're not, uh, I'd encourage you to get some of these. Uh, I found these to be particularly helpful in helping craft temptation plans and repentance plans. Well, let's pray. We have a break here. Father, I pray, would you give us grace uh, to take what we've learned in the Scriptures and to, to craft particular ways that we can help hurt people with their unique situations. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Will you give us all grace that we might be used by you to be an encouragement and a blessing, uh, an instrument of your grace uh, to hurting people that are struggling with addiction. Uh, Lord, um, will you give us skill and wisdom in these things for your own honor and glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright 2017, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.